Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we're live. It's uh, 10.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the West Coast. Oh, now I'm going to forget. I think it's 6.30. 6.30. UTC, it's 6.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time. Sorry, I don't know what time it is in Perth. I don't think you're calling in anyway. Maybe not. Let me know. It's probably like shout out to Perth. Three thirty a.m. on the most remote, uh, big city in the world. It's West Coast, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. West Coast Australia. Yeah, it's kind of just sort of over there, right? It's not like uh, there's nothing going on on the West Coast other than that, right? It's the highest concentration of millionaires per per capita in Australia, at least. Lots of mining millionaires over there. Maybe not anymore, but huh. it used to be the case. I would think Byron Bay would be, oh, like per capita. Byron's, Byron's probably the highest per capita of like celebrities in Australia, something like that. They all love it down there. All the Hollywood Byron, Hollywood sick. types. Shout out to Nimbin too. What up, Nimbin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'll, if you know, you know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna elaborate on that one. That's right. What's happening, guys? We've got people from everywhere. Kerava, Finland, Chai Town, Florianopolis, Brazil. Wow. Berlin. What's good? North Carolina. Go Tar Heels. Uh, not much. I mean, this is uh, Value After Hours. I'm Bill Brewster with my co-host Jake Taylor and Tobias Carlisle. Jake, what are you going to be talking about today? Uh, I've got uh, Solitude and Leadership. Oh, very nice. And Toby, what are you going to be going with? Uh, I think the market is very, very balled up at the moment. Uh, value stock geek, friend of the podcast, good uh, good Twitter follow, a little while ago alerted me to the fact that the fear and greed indicator that uh, CNN publishes is kind of like a, a useful indicator. So I'm just going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that was real you, high last week. I think it was like 87. Got to 91. Like Topped out at 91. Ooh. I don't know where it is now. I'll just have a quick look. That's big time. Uh, Never go I, full full yeah. greed. That's as high as it's been. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna visit uh, Spirit Aerosystems, an idea that I wrote up on my blog on October 26 and made exactly $0 from as it doubled. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> huh. Sounds right. Yeah. So, uh, who wants to go first? I don't mind. I'll take it away because I got I got a short yeah. one here. Fear and greed. Do it. So, uh, gotta give a shout out to Value Stock Geek for this one because he let me know about it. I, I I've I've been aware of its existence, um, but you know, not really kind of focused on it too much. It's it's a funny indicator. It's it's published by CNN, and it's got. It's basically a, uh, it looks like a speedo from the car. Like there's a red zone, which funnily enough is greed, sorry, is, is, is fear, is extreme fear. And that's at zero. And then you get extreme greed at 100. I don't know if there's ever been a 100 reading on it. There's probably never been a zero reading either. It tends to be in the middle somewhere. 
but we can track it over time. Well, let me, let me tell you what's in it first. It's a, it's a weird kind of combination of stuff, but it, it seems to be reasonably effective. Um, looks at stock price strength, stocks hitting their 52-week highs, safe haven demand, which is uh, stocks trading relative to bonds, put and call options over a five-day average, price breadth, stock price breadth using a McClellan volume summation index, whatever that is, market momentum, just if it's over its uh, oops, over its 200-day average, I think. Uh, junk bond demand, market volatility. So it's this combination of things that indicate how everybody feels about the market, I guess, rather than looking at, you know, traditionally we might look at valuation or other indicators like that. I think it's a reasonable short-term sort of indicator. It just tells you. So I, I think it's useful as a value guy, probably one of the hardest things to do is to just stay patient and just wait for your pitch. And I think that the last five years have really tested a lot of guys. A lot of people have drifted because it's just too painful to sit uh, waiting for these things to get like cheap enough. Do you just shift your hurdle rate down? Do you just accept lower returns? Or do you sit there and try and wait for that really fat pitch and... I honestly don't have the good answer for it. I, I'll give you my answer, but then you can have a look at my performance and you can see what a good answer that's been. I think you should wait, but that's not been particularly helpful. The interesting thing about it, and this is what uh, Value Stock Geek alerted me to, which I think is is very useful. Basically, the the it it trends between zero and a hundred, but it never really gets to zero one hundred. So you want to look at it in decile, uh, sorry, in quintile. So when it's when it's below twenty. That's a pretty good indicator of a short term. Like it's pretty good buying in that in that zone. And when it gets above eighty, which is the top quintile, then it's uh, it's expensive and it's and it tracks the market reasonably well. So at the beginning of this year, it got to the highest reading. It, it came right up on a hundred. It was like ninety seven or ninety eight. Um, January. Yeah, right. So it was right at the end of last year, right at the beginning of this year. The absolute peak was right on the turn of the year, whatever day that was. And then, you know, through March was one of the lowest we've seen. It was almost to zero. So it's a pretty good. In, like it, it would have it would have said to you, sell something or buy some puts or sell some calls or something in January, which would have been a pretty good move. And then at the bottom in March, it was telling you to buy everything that wasn't nailed down, which again was a pretty good indicator. You can go back through time and see how it's performed. It's been very good. You get you get about one or two opportunities to buy and sell every year. So from that perspective, I think it's a reasonably helpful. You know, it's not giving you too many things to do. I'm not saying you buy or sell everything. I'm just saying it's just worth knowing where you are in the cycle. If you're getting the urge to buy something and you're thinking about paying up, if you have a look at the fear and greed indicator and it's close to 100, you might want to consider the impact that's having on your emotions too, that you're getting tired of waiting and wanting to buy. And maybe you consider at that stage not buying and waiting for an opportunity where it's a little bit closer to the bottom. So when we look at it now, it's at 92, which is one of the highest readings um, that it's... Eight to a go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Almost there. Almost there. Almost there. Basically, this is the sell zone. Anytime you're over 80... You're in the sell or the don't buy zone. Just, just stay, just stay cool like cool like Fonzie at this point. Just wait for the, wait for the fat pitch. No idea when that's going to come, but I would just say that it's extremely uh, optimistic, extremely greedy at the moment, and that's that's literally what the the indicator says. It's extreme greed. So, 
for my two cents, I don't think it's a good time to be doing anything right now. I think if you've got, unless you've got something that's just screaming at you to buy it, you're probably going to get a better opportunity in the not too distant future. You guys use anything like that? You ever think about that? Find that helpful? I find it very interesting, the, the inner year movements of it. Like, it's kind of surprising that it goes as high and as low as it does in the middle of a year. Yeah. Because it doesn't feel like that when you're sort of in that year. It sort of feels a little bit more smoothed out for some reason, but... Would you say it's extreme? Would you feel the extreme greed at the moment? Do you think that it's extreme? Do you feel that sort of FOMO at the moment? I mean, dude, it's inning three. (laughs) Well, does that mean no? Sure that you could you could correlate uh, never sell conversations with the fear and greed index, right? Like there was no one saying never sell in January of. 2009 <laughs> I don't remember that conversation no, occurring at all either. but we've achieved a permanently high plateau there'll be no more gigantic mega bears we're only going to have these like mid-sized mega bears where well not not mega bears mid-sized bears where it's like down 20% golf ball off a concrete path straight back to all-time highs I hear people talking about how it's like we're we have another like we're at the beginning of a new bull market right now. Your your co-host says that. Three. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I know. Jesus, I'm... it's like I don't exist. <laughs> no, no, real people, Bill. Oh, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Not just um, podcast it, dweebs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, it doesn't make that doesn't make sense to me. From a, you know, when I think about the classic setup for just like a premium conditions that a bull market could sprout forth from it would be high interest rates low profit margins low valuations uh low sentiment all these things are like the the ingredients that you need for a super bull market uh, i think I we got like zero we're out from that right <laughs> we like got we're zero the exact opposite low rates record high profit margins <laughs> crazy sentiment high never sell conversations. I mean, I, I don't know. But do you do feel I? like what's, I mean, I feel like that's been the case for the last five years. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that, I don't know that the margins are going to come in. Um, you, so you're not a, you're not a margins are the most mean reverting series in finance kind of guy. Uh, I mean, they haven't been lately, right? So well, I that's think true. that there's a, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that in more of an intellectual property world, maybe they're less mean reverting than people maybe want them to be. Is it an IP world or is it the network? Is it more of the, uh, just a winner takes all world rather Returns. than a... Yeah, intangibles generally. Uh, that's what I would, I would say. I think a big part of it is globalization and capital winning really against labor as you added a ton of labor into the into the sort of corporate world um but maybe we're maybe heading in the other direction a little bit that way with more trade wars and who knows what a little bit more protectionist kind of policies you might not see the same kind of dynamic i don't know do you think that that well that was sort of more of the last administration which has been thrown out so the new administration they're kind of do you think they're going to continue with those policies? I think I the no narrative idea. on China has changed pretty permanently, at least for the foreseeable future. But I don't know. I I, I mean, 
I don't think that there is uh, euphoria everywhere, I guess. But I don't. I didn't invest through 99, so I don't have a sense of whether or not people that were sort of in like the more valuey names in 99 were euphoric or not. And certainly, I mean, look, Puru, my man, uh, 400% in like a year or whatever, year to date. Uh, I mean, he even admitted he was like, this has been a heck of a run and it'll probably never be done again. I mean, that's uh, you see returns like that. He even said that he thought it was in the nascent stages of a bubble. So, uh, you know, when Just Puru the beginning. was saying it. Nason, what's a what does full grown look like? Then? I seriously feel like I'm not oh. even sitting in front of you guys. <laughs> inning three, jeez. Uh, you're right, Billy. You're, you've called it so far. I, I haven't been wrong, other than some minor hiccup in March. That's true, and that that wasn't that wasn't because of overvaluation. That was for a different reason. That was that's right. The world had to stop. There was to, a specific reason for that one. Stop the melt up. It's a strong melt-up. What a crazy I, time in the markets, Jace. I think it goes higher. I don't know why. I don't know why it wouldn't. Like I just, I don't understand why it wouldn't. Well, I think it's untethered from fundamentals now. So, it, yeah, but it could go. It can go. It can go wherever it wants to go. As uh, as David Einhorn says, it's that you know two times overvalued, three times overvalued is no less silly than two times overvalued. It's just yeah. as silly. Well, and it's just like when you're putting, I mean, look, I know that everybody has a process that they have to justify to themselves. Like, I get it. But when you're valuing the cash flows that far out, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you're bound to be able to tell yourself stories you believe. I had a look at the FAMG just for fun over the weekend. I just pulled up. Nah, they don't count. They don't count. They're fine. Well, I, I pulled them up and I said, and I was just looking at them like, you know, let's assume that these things because they're all like their returns. Like Microsoft returned like forty percent plus on equity last year on like one hundred and twenty billion dollars worth of equity. Like it's just bonkers, and yeah. uh, shows no sign of slowing down. Facebook, you know, incredible. Google, inc- incredible. They're about seventeen and a half percent, but their return on capital is like is astronomically high because they're sandbagging a little bit there. So then I looked at what kind of returns do you get out of these companies here? They're not like it's not. The, I think the returns are somewhere depending on which one you're looking at. They're like between sort of twelve and eight or six percent, depending on where you're kind of looking through those names. Just do you want to lock in those kind of numbers at this point and then assume no fade? Like they, I think that they they reinvest a lot less than they, just because they, they reinvest a lot less than they kind of look like they are because there's no you know the dividends there's none the buybacks are basically minuscule i don't know where the money leaks away i haven't figured that part out yet but there's it's not it's not all reinvested in the business and it comes out somehow like the only way you can kind of sustain those kind of levels is there's got to be some reinvestment and there's got to be some fade and i just don't know what how, how long do these things fade like do you fade them over 25 years what's jake will be able to tell us the base rate for like maintaining those kind of returns over 25 years like that's got to be a low probability event run I'm not saying it's not going to happen it's just you want to bet on it well I, was, well I was uh you know reading back through buffett's letters again and he's talking about how in and this must have been around the 99 2000 time frame because he's talking a lot about tech businesses and how you know he's sure that there are, are some incredible businesses in there but that he's not sure how to tell which ones are which and he says that 
you know, Warren and Charlie have been looking for decades for companies that they feel like are inevitable. Yeah. And they've only found a couple, right? And these guys have probably kicked over every rock that was out there and they found a handful. And like at that point, it was like, uh, might've been Coke and Gillette, I think at that time. Like these are inevitably good businesses. Like they're gonna be better in 10 years, 20 years than they are today. Well, I mean, he's that was true, right? Like they, they definitely make more money than they did. But anyway, t- two out of probably 10,000 that they looked at and now it feels like all of these all of are, <laughs> they're all inevitables, right? Like they're all, everyone thinks that these are inevitable. And I, I'm just a little bit skeptical that there are as many inevitables out there as currently deemed inevitable. I mean, one of the problems is when you dig these things up and you look at that, like there are lots of companies, there are lots of really good businesses out there that have sustained these high returns and equity for really long periods of time. They're just all carrying an absolute ocean of debt. That's the thing that kills me. Like every time I look at something, it's got just astronomical levels of debt. Like they, they clearly the managers who are running it just know that you boost return on equity by carrying a whole lot of debt. You just got to make it through your five-year tenure without anything really yeah. bad happening. Cash a gigantic check at the end of yeah. that. Like ruin your grandchildren's Revenue's lives. Flat. Revenue's flat. You boosted EPS from buybacks and yeah. borrowing money to do it. And then you cash the giant check. Yeah. And then hand it off All to right. the next guy. He's he's running the same gauntlet. He's just got to get to the end of the five-year period without blowing the whole thing up. And then the next guy, and finally somebody's going to catch that downturn. But none of these guys get any clawbacks for the work that they did. Neutron right. Jack didn't get any clawbacks. The guy that catches it's going to get a golden parachute. Yeah, so well, that's true. He's not actually going to care that much. That's why you can't own these things that like a bunch of ETFs on. They're just garbage voters. You're going to vote yes, losers. yeah. yeah. Yeah, did you losers. see that? What was it? Is it Nasdaq is uh, going to delist any company that doesn't have a diversified enough board? What does that even mean? I mean, I know what it means. I'm bound to get myself in trouble with a comment like that, but I think uh, diversity of thought is more important in business than looks, and looks will lead to thought. So uh, I'm sure there's a correlation there, but seems like a recipe for pretty stupid incentives. But here I sit, me, and people would say, well, what the hell do you know about diversity? The answer is not much. So moving on, and I've blown up my own spot. <laughs> Who wants to go next? Uh, I guess I will after that. All right. Go f- uh, yeah, you're, you're hot right now. Keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, I, um, I, I don't know. I, I've been thinking about, this spirit aerosystems thing and why uh i i thought i saw it think i did see it and didn't profit from it and i guess that the thing that i've realized is uh i don't really i guess that i don't have a tolerance to handle these like capex heavy businesses in the down cycles uh is sort of like the thought that i came out of uh everything like i i don't know i was sitting around thinking about it because i've been beating myself up for a couple days about it um it wouldn't have been like a big position but every bit of money matters and uh like i I objectively saw it and here i'd sit with no none of the benefit it's like sort of sucks it's resulting a little bit though isn't it like yeah i mean when i think about it i think that the problem with it is i didn't know how to handicap what 
the actual downside was. But then again, I mean, I had a buddy from Boeing tell me like, you know, they've, I mean, it's not like inside. I was just talking to him and he's like, we've supported them in the past. We're going to support them again. I don't see how we don't, we need them. They're integral to our manufacturing. And I guess I just sort of got like hung up on business quality and how long could this go? And who knows if it's, you know, too cheap or too expensive now, but I think that something that is important is figuring out, um, you know, for me, uh, I mean, Dan McMurtry said it when I talked to him, he said like, it's not just what you're, what you see, it's what you'll act on. And I think that I'm learning a little bit more that I'm starting to find the assets that I'm willing to bet on and hold more than I sort of knew in the past, which I guess is a function of experience, but uh, it's been a cheap used to be enough, I think. And I used to have like a lot of like sort of marginal businesses. And I think going forward, I'll probably have one or two at almost all times that are too cheap. Like, I think I've got this bug that I'm never going to be able to kick, but, um, like I think curates probably as ugly as I want to get in the future, uh, if I can help it. But you know, I can't, I can't buy some of these glamor, glamor things, but I've, uh, realized who I am a little bit through that. And it's been a painful experience, but then I think like, do I actually want to make those bets over and over again? And I don't think so in a discretionary portfolio for a lot of the reasons that I've articulated. I think that you're sort of like saying in that case, you're almost saying I'm the one that can go in in front of the market and I'm the one that's willing to accept this risk. And maybe in like one individual scenario I would be, but in five or whatever, probably not and probably overestimates my emotional ability to handle pain. I so. wonder if uh, treating it more like that lower quadrant of the dartboard where pick a ETF, you might know someone who runs an ETF that specializes in really cheap companies uh, and letting them just own that, just own it as a little basket and not try to take as much idiosyncratic risk with the assets. Yeah, and like, you know, I guess especially with Spirit, if you look at how it ripped, it you definitely had um there's correlation among those moves. Like it wasn't simply that, right? Like everything ripped. Now that was like really bombed out. And I guess that there's I have like these competing thoughts in my head of that's where you get the big moves from, right? Like the the junky stuff that people don't want to look at. I mean, that's sort of like how value works, uh, in my opinion. But then you've also got like this side of me that says, well, you know, you also got to be able to execute it. Um, and at the end of the day, I couldn't have really owned it in any size because I, I didn't know how to underwrite the risks for real. Um, but maybe I was requiring too much of myself. I'm not sure. But that's a good thing, right? You don't have to, you know, where if one cannot speak, there of one must be silent. Like there are places where you're just never going to be able to get get safe with it in your own mind. So just don't worry about it. Pass over in silence. Let it go. Yeah, this one pisses me off, man. I mean, <laughs> like I've been watching and watching and watching and watching, you know, and then it's like the, I don't know. It's just annoying. Yeah, I I mean, you got you can't be, you can't beat up on yourself too much, right? Because there are, there are reasons to be, you know, there are lots of positions that you could have taken on that stock. You could have been short that stock too, which I was, yeah. which didn't work out very well. But there are, <laughs> there, there are, 
but we even talked about that offline, right? And I was like, I yeah. don't know about that short. Like, I think it's pretty. I mean, I yeah. think I had that thing pegged, right? And like, I just there's something about it. I just couldn't develop a view, and it upsets me now. But there are any number of possible outcomes from where you were, and the one outcome that did occur, yeah. you can't then say, well, that was that shows that I did the right thing or the wrong thing. You know, I just yeah, no doubt. I had this up from Mobison today. He talks about being in a casino with somebody hitting on seventeen. And everybody sort of stops and looks at the guy. And the, even the dealer says, you sure you want to hit on 17? And he says, yes, I do. And then a four comes down, ice cold, 21, blackjack, baby. Genius. And the, yeah. the dealer's like, congratulations, sir, great call. You know, all of that sort of stuff. Everybody's cheering this guy on. Yeah. And he's just done something utterly ridiculous. And that makes yeah. everybody cheer because it kind of worked out. Like, that's the definition of resulting. So I'm always like, you know, if even if you, you can't worry too much in the in the near term about about the outcome of the process you got to stick to the process if you're confident that's a good one over the longer term well, how many yeah, hits think, on 17 uh, are there right now <laughs> i i Oof. think what i think what i'm reasonably good at is looking at downside risk i think what i really need to work on is like portfolio management at this point because i'm sort of like i guess when i I think I'm at the point where like now I'm running a portfolio, which is sort of different than building a portfolio and that requires different skill sets. And, um, to your point, like I think passing on something because I don't know how to quantify the downside probably is the right decision. Um, but you know, now I got other things I got to work on. I have plenty of weaknesses, folks. Don't worry. I'll have many to talk about in the future. <laughs> Personality well, <I> mean, and investing. <laughs> Invert that. And would you ever say that, betting on the risk that you didn't understand was the right move i yeah no i don't think so because you Ever. can't price it right but uh it's still still frustrating like i wonder i i would like to talk to i mean obviously well, i'd like to talk to buffett yeah so would everybody you idiot <laughs> but um I, i'd be interested to you know, know what it's say well, I just wonder how many of these he's had in his career where, like, he was like, yeah, I probably, sh you know, like, I think it's probably too cheap, but I'm going to let this ball pass, right? Because it's not a fat pitch. Um, that's that's the whole game, right? That's entirely yeah. the game, not swinging at the dumb stuff. If you can but it was smart. It just wasn't smart for me, but it's frustrating. Or sizing it properly, like size it like an option position. Yeah. You can do that too. I think that where I've gotten on that, because I was thinking about that this morning, is I don't want to get into that habit because then I think it's easy. I'm the type of personality that, like, if my wife has cookies around, like, I'll just eat five, so I just better not eat one. And I think that's the same thing with uh, making option size bets. Like, I think if I started to do that regularly, I'll do starter positions, and I will churn the lower portion of my portfolio. Um, but, like, just having them to keep around i don't think is a very good habit for my personality type i think i, I would run you want to eat all the cookies yeah i think i'd have like too much just like random stuff laying around and i don't think that that would help me much i, I think i put this in in deep value but rory sutherland who's the um the chair of uh, ogilvy and like the, the the significance of ogilvy as an as an advertising agency is they they were the ones who sort of started doing all of the market research so they'd figure out the behaviors and then they'd go and test the uh, the advertisements to see if they worked or not and Rory has this great line where he says something like it's easy to fool yourself and so he talks about I forget which philosopher but one of them he limited himself to one pipe per day but the pipe was enormous 
And he said, it, <laughs> it's much easier. Like, you know, if you, over the course of a week, you're allowed to have whatever. So, you know, two drinks, you know, five nights a week, you're allowed to have 10 drinks over the course of a week. And he said, it's much easier to like just have nights where you don't drink at all than to get, you know, into the third drink and say, you know, I'm just going to limit myself to the through fewer drinks on the other nights of this week. You know, it's just behaviorally, there are things that you just can't overcome. So, and I think Taleb's got a great line here as well, where he says something like, you know, you can't, you can't rationalize your way into these things and you can't moralize your way into these things. All you can do to overcome your own behavior is to trick yourself. And I think that's a pretty good approach. Like when you've got the rational mind on, set up all of these obstacles to trick the irrational mind when it comes, like get it caught in the labyrinth. That's how I work. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Uh, I can understand why you gravitated towards uh, like a quant strategy over time because there are some behavioral biases. Like, um, I don't know, I was talking to Rick Salem yesterday and like it's clear to me that he's got a much better process than I do in his portfolio, right? Like he's got, he's much more um, like quantitative about his qualitative approach that said, like, I've had a pretty good year being me, and I don't know whether or not, uh, you know, maybe someday there's going to be, like, a service or something that I can chart all this shit in and I can, like, track myself, you know? But one thing, That's like, it's a, I think it's a, the best time to review your process is when you have a good year. Yeah. And the worst time to do it is when you have a bad year. It sounds yeah, totally counterintuitive, yeah. but when you have a bad year, you're just like, oh, fuck this. I want to go back and change everything that I did so that doesn't happen again. And then, you yeah. know, it might just be, that's just the luck of the draw. Like, the, if you do the right thing, you're going to have bad outcomes. Like, that's just what's going to happen. Sometimes they're going to cluster together. What can you do? Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, like, Rick and I were talking about the curate thing, right? And I was, like, telling him how I sized it. And he was like, I don't Like, that's aggressive and i sort of agree but then there's the other side of me that's like yeah but here you know the guys that i study have always said like when you swing swing big right so i don't know i'm just like working through i'm gonna take like the next two months to figure out who i really am and how i'm really doing things and like what i actually want to be going forward because one good year does not a career make and i'm not trying to blow up but part of the, part of the process too of like one of the nice things about investing and this is a Buffett line, but the longer you're in it, the more you get an idea of what a really good pitch looks like and what a really, you know, what an ordinary pitch looks like. And so the more time you spend in the market, so, you know, you, the first time you find something that, that sort of meets your criteria, you buy it and then you've realized that the mistakes that you made. So the next then you get, you don't buy that next time, you buy something that's a little bit better until you get to the point where you're Buffett and you're like, there's two things in his career, right? It's Coke and Gillette. Yeah, well, in American Express, right? Geico and whatever. But yeah, I just—I mean, I'm riffing on Jake, what Jake said before, but not not necessarily on. Yeah, those those were good decisions too. <laughs> but but the interesting thing about those is like I, I don't know. I think when you go through his career, and you know, shout out to Kyler Hassan because he gave me this thought today. But like, if you um, if you look at like Geico, it's not clear that when he bought that, it was the inevitable thing that it looks like today but it is somewhat clear that it had a, a potential path and you know it's it's almost like he has done a very good job at betting 
in situations where like there's a big right tail but the price mitigates the left like he really saves himself for that sort of setup i think that's a good Um, example amx is another good example of exactly that where it was he was really leaning on the business quality there right he's really leaning on the fact that geico did have the low cost advantage even though the the balance sheet had been blown up a little bit and they'd under they'd done some dumb underwriting there as well and he was sort of saying they can go back to being good underwriters and true also with Amex, they were like, well, they're going to have a gigantic fine here. And the risk is that the little merchants don't take, because the little merchants worry about getting paid, the little the restaurants don't take Amex. That's the risk. And so he has Harry Bottle go and sit beside the cash register in some restaurants, and he does the same thing. And they're like, no, no, they're still, they're still accepting Amex. We're good to go. Same with uh, Buffalo News, right? Like Buffalo News, I don't think was like a clear a winner, point. but yeah. they were like, okay, if we win this battle right now, it's going to be worth the riches. So they were willing to go to the mat. But I think to look at Do you think they were planning to the... win it? Or do you think they were do you think that they thought we can still make money in it as a two in a two paper town? Oh, I think that they were going for the kill. Yeah. And I think that they knew that if they if they successfully pulled off the kill, it was worth the the bet. But I think that they I think they sort of understood that there was a chance that they would lose on it. I'm not sure. They both lamented it for a long time, right? In the letters, they were said. I mean, Munger at least said it was a mistake for a long time in there. Yeah. This is while it was going on. Not, not. I don't know if, how they feel about it after the fact, but while it was going on, they were upset about it, saying they were losing a lot of money. I'm sure they liked it after. I bet that they liked it more while they were doing it than they let on, but they probably they're very good at setting low expectations and That's true. you know, over delivering. That's true. So very true. I like that chat. That was a good one. Let's Yeah. <laughs> let's do JT. Sometimes we get some nuggets. <laughs> You got to you got to you got to sift. It's it's like It's like standing in the riverbed. You got to sift a lot of mud to find the cold in there. That's right. Yeah. More. All right. Uh so this this veggie segment is called Solitude and Leadership and that's the name of a a paper and a talk actually that uh William Derwezowitz, I believe is how he says it. I don't know. It's one of those tough Czech looking kind of names. Um, but it's he gave in 2009 a speech to the the class at uh, West Point and turned this into a, an article at, on the uh, American Scholar, I think it's called. Anyway, so this guy, William, is a um, he's an essayist and an author and he teaches English at, at Yale or he did. Um, anyway, so he's talking about look at, like he has all these students who come in at Yale and they are like world-class hoop jumpers, right? They know how to play the game. Um, you know, he calls them excellent sheep in another book uh, later. But, you know, they know how to ace all the tests and jump through all the hoops, all the extracurriculars to get into Harvard Business School or Johns Hopkins Medical or, uh, you know, get the job at Goldman or McKinsey, right? They, they just know how to climb in a, in a hierarchy. And... Uh, he then brings it back to Heart of Darkness, which is a book by Joseph Conrad that you might be more familiar with as the movie Apocalypse Now. And uh, in the book, the main character meets this, um, he meets this like central station boss. And this guy is just a pure bureaucrat. You know, he says that he's like, he's unremarkable, commonplace, ordinary. 
he's obeyed, but he's not respected or admired um, or even feared. He's he originates nothing. But all he does is keep a process going, and uh, you know he, he's able to keep a routine going. He he can thrive in a bureaucracy, and he doesn't take any stupid risks or you know to question authority. It's always just about keeping like the environment totally rewards conformity. And he's talking about how it, there's a crisis of leadership in America, even in 2009, due to the fact that no one wants to really like go against the grain that way. Like we're training all of our kids to be these hoop jumpers and not really to think for themselves. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with complacency and, uh, you know, just go, keeping the little wheel turning that, that sort of keeps you from getting crushed as a, as a member of this giant bureaucracy whether it was the military or corporate America or the government, wherever, any level of leadership um, has been bureaucratized to a way that it, it attracts sort of the wrong element. Um, so then he pivots to talking about uh, multitasking and shows how terrible we are at it. And, you know, and, and the opposite of multitasking, he says, is like concentration and really thinking about something and only that one thing for a long period of time. And he talks about how his first um, his first thoughts when he like approaches a subject are always someone else's thoughts. They're there. It's the common sense, like their common sense, like common conventional wisdom. About yeah. it. And it, it takes a long time to sit there. You can't be in a hurry to let everyone else's conventional wisdom thoughts sort of wash away and then you can actually hear your own voice about it um you know you're talking about not being in a hurry and apparently james joyce wrote ulysses which was like you know arguably the best book of, of a century uh he wrote it it averaged 100 well i know it's i've tried to read it before, it's impossible but uh, totally impenetrable but he wrote it 100 words a day on average that's how long it took him to it's write taken it. a long time that's about how fast I can yeah. read it. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm under 100 on that. So then he talks about how media and whether it's, you know, especially social media, but also even, you know, newspapers, TV, radio, whatever it is, those are all other people's thoughts. And it's all an elaborate excuse to really run away from yourself and run away from your own voice inside your head. Um, so we're continuously bombarding ourselves with other people's thoughts. And I mean, you could spend five minutes on Twitter and it is just an absolute cacophony of other people's thoughts just jammed like right into your neocortex, right? Like it's, it, it can be kind of rough. I know I said last week that I was thankful for it. And I do think <laughs> that it's true from a, from a like meeting other people standpoint and, and learning some new good ideas, but you really do have to sift through a lot to get to it anyway. Um, he does say that books are a better version of this media in that they sort of represent someone else's solitude. Yeah. Um, you know, them sitting with their own thoughts. So at least you're getting a little bit of a touch of the solitude. Um, and then he also makes kind of that common Lindy argument about books, you know, that they're, if they've been around for a long time, they must be decent. Um, so he says solitude is really like kind of three different things. It's, it's introspection. It's concentration on focused work. And it's also, you know, sustained reading of, of books typically. And, and then there's one other element to it, which he says is, and it's kind of paradoxical, but he says it's, you know, deep friendship and an, in an intimate conversation is actually a form of solitude. You know, you're, you're almost thinking out loud often when you're talking to somebody in a very 
intimate setting. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. That, that rings true for me. Yeah. Oh, that, all of that rings true for me. I love those four. Those are great. Um, so and he's talking about how the, the position of a leader is a very solitary place to be because you're often having to make the tough decision by yourself. Like the buck stops with you. So you have to be able to block out a lot of the noise and, and really focus your, on your own, um, on your own inner voice really. And the, you know, he's telling them that they need to prepare now similar to how like you'd have to learn, you need to learn how to shoot your gun before you get into the first firefight if you're a cadet. Right. Um, and, and that really like we, people don't spend enough time sort of finding themselves like finding yourself has become this kind of a cliche of like a liberal arts, you know, like eat, pray, love or something kind of a trip, but, but the finding yourself in solitude and really like, what are your deep core values that are important to you? Um, like people just don't do that work and they hide from it via social media and TV or Netflix streaming or whatever. Could, could you even do it in college now? I mean, I, I, college when I was, when I was there was there's not not that there was so much work, but there's a lot of work that you got to get through. There's no possibility for like trying to figure out what you're doing. That's you sh- uh, that, that's what I thought anyway. Nothing. I didn't have any thoughts until I got out until I started working. Yeah, I don't know. I think it probably depends on what you, what kind of like you know. I could imagine if you were doing like St. John's has the classic uh, classic literature track. I don't know if you've heard about this, no. but it's like. What's well, all the like best books and you read the original sources and it's like it builds upon itself over a, a, a over one. history. And rather than like, you know, taking someone else's interpretation of it, you get back to the kind of source material. Like you read Beowulf or I don't you know, whatever yeah. all of these classics. Um and I think there's something Ulysses. to that maybe. <laughs> yeah, Ulysses is in like your junior year, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Um, the Odyssey is great, but it, Ulysses is just impenetrable. So there's, I have one more thing on here, and this is um, someone recommended to read. Montaigne has a, a a section on solitude. I think it's called Of Solitude. Um, I read that this morning, and I pulled out this one really good quote that I'll read to you guys. All right. Who is it that does not voluntarily exchange his health, his repose, and his very life for reputation and glory? the most useless, frivolous, and false coin that passes current amongst us. So. Well, I love Montaigne. I, 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 had a, I, had a, I had a firm named after Montaigne for a little while there. So that, you're, my, you're talking my man there. I knew that I was lobbing you on there. <laughs> yeah, I love Montaigne. Uh, just, he, I don't know how much of a, of a philosophy he is. He just sort of quotes everybody else and then puts it all together and sort of, it's kind of like, yeah. he, he's, in some ways he's like, a 500-year-old version of um, the guy who wrote uh, uh, the fifty, the 48 Laws of Power. It's kind of like just oh, quoting Robert Green. Robert Green. It's like going back through a lot of those older, just seeing what other people said. Oh, he's got some hilarious kind of. He's a f- interesting, interesting thinker. Yeah. Yeah, he's almost like doing book reports from yeah. 400 years ago. Or he's just got was. quote after quote after quote, and then he compares them, and then he discusses them, and he says who's what he thinks about each. When when you parlay in a when you're defending a fort, should you go out to parlay? No, because sometimes they'll just run around you and go into your fort. <laughs> so you'll be outside to talk, and the enemy's in your fort. Good advice. You can use that any day of the week. I'm not sure how, but I like it. <laughs> well, Sun Tzu's so obviously, can't go outside. 
like all the the investment implications of all this are hopefully relatively obvious yeah. like yeah. being able to just sit and think for yourself not having to worry about what the crowd is thinking as much i mean all these things that we've heard in other contexts um i thought this was a a nice way of saying it saying the same story but in a different way i'm more meant toby guarding the Toby's anecdote about guarding the fort. That's what I don't yeah, know, how, no, to, I know how to utilize. Uh, the only thing that I would push back on that about is I have never actually had success on my own. And all of my success is usually due to the people that I've surrounded myself with. So I actually think that, like, for me, dealing with a group, usually it's three people, uh, just seems to be the right amount that works for me that are like truly there to debate issues. Uh, and like I really came into this in law school where it was about not being right, but you know, the, the debate to get to the answer. Uh, that has been a very helpful exercise to me. Now, you know, whether or not, I don't always walk away with the same takeaway that the person that I was talking to had, right? And, and a lot of the world is very gray, but I think sometimes if I sit and I think I can get myself locked in a thought pattern that's not true and sometimes talking to others will help sort of jog me out of my own brain because I'm pretty flawed as I've said now <laughs> twice. <laughs> we have the self-flagellation box checked for this episode. It's good. That's good. That's what you need. But you know what I mean? Like, I I just think, um, you know, there's a way to do it, right? Like, it's not um, it's not about proving somebody wrong or right or whatever. But, uh, you know, truly interested conversation with other people that are interested in similar topics has usually turned me into a smarter individual. So I, I agree with you. And then I would maybe add that as an addendum. Unlike when you were thankful for free trading, in which I just disagree with you. Full <laughs> stop. Yes, that is not an addendum. We just have a difference of opinion. Yeah, that's. I mean, I I, I had the same experience in law school. Just there's, for most decisions, there's so much that uh, it's been argued so many different ways to get to that point, and it's just hard to do all the research to get yourself to know all of it by the time you come to have. You know the way that the way that you discuss through an issue to work out how you should be deciding one way or the other. And well, it's good dude, to have. Like, I'm sorry to cut you off. I know that people hate it when I do that. I don't even like that about myself. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> but, uh, the, the, um, dude, the, my Twitter followers. Shout out to you guys. Like, I, I mean, you know, I floated a question about Bitcoin, which I don't know shit about. I don't know why any of you want me to opine on it. I'm another idiot that has no opinion that's worth listening to. But I guess, like, I want to learn. But, like, I got directed in the right way right now. Uh, or, like, I floated something about semiconductors and people shot me a couple things that, like, like, it's amazing today if you use the tool the right way, how quickly your acceleration, like, you, you don't have to be on an island anymore. Now, you got to figure out who's got a motivation to pitch you something or send you something or whatever like that. You sort of have to be smart about. But it really is an incredible tool, despite not leading to solitude which is why i have moved close to the beach and i go sit there and read you can do both you just need you just need to like limit the limit the fire hose from from twitter just control the fire hose 
dude, this weekend, my brain, because I like reinstalled it on the phone for marketing purposes, like I could feel on Sunday night, I was like, my brain needs to just like relax. Yeah, I'll switch it's it off over the weird weekend. How it'll do that? Take take it off the take it off the home screen. Yeah, it's on the back, but I had a lot of stuff going on. But like, I can't imagine. I mean, I know we talk about him. If, well, we try not to talk about him that much. Trump must be crazy. Like, Trump must go to bed and just have like all these sensors just like firing on him. I don't know how anyone could be that aggressive on a social media platform, and like ever go to bed, which he doesn't. If you look at the times that he tweets, but like. It's wild what it does to my brain sometimes. I'd be like, man, I got to get off this thing. It's hard to get into that deep strategic kind of thought. If, you, if you're if you on Twitter, you have to get off and go and do something for like a period of time, like 15 minutes to an hour so you can get back into that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm writing a, I, I've got a new book. I'm working at the moment about 40% of the way through the, the, uh, the first draft of it. And so I just can't be on Twitter. If I'm on Twitter, it just blows my brains for trying to write because you've got to put all of this stuff in then write you know the the, the hundred or so squeeze the hundred or so words, out, words you know? yeah. <laughs> it's so like an hour to get everything loaded up so you know what you're going to say squeeze out a hundred words and then you know realize that it's garbage and go and do something else but that 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 process is like you know i, I like the way so hemingway used to do this hemingway first thing in the morning and this is a pretty good price like a little kid so it doesn't work that well but by the first thing I get to the computer, just start writing then. So you read through what you've previously written, realize that it's total shit, edit it while you're going through what you've previously written, and then you got a little bit that you can write. So you got like 20% of the time is creative, 80% of the time is like editing what you've previously written. So that's quite a useful process. And then the stuff that you wrote previously gets slightly better, and, the, and then you have something new on the page for tomorrow, so you can go back and edit it again. So like writing's, writing's not about writing, writing's about editing. It's really, really hard to write the first draft. It's really easy to edit something and make it good, but you've got to start with something. Do you leave mid-sentence hanging off like Hemingway did? Oh. That way you have like that thread to pick up on the, the next day. I didn't know that he did that, but that's I like that. That's smart. Or your brain works on and you go to bed. like you'll, you know. 100% that happens. One, I, saw, I, I can't figure out how to write something, and it just comes to me in the middle of the night all the time. That's the only way to do it. You just sit there. Like, oh, you end up leaving the room, and then you'll just be like, "I gotta go write this down." Yeah, I've if, if I don't, like I, if way. I don't, I won't go. I won't go back to sleep. I got a pen. I got a pad beside my beside my bed. Oh, do you? Scratch it out. Yeah. I'll tell my wife like mid conversation. I'll be like, "I gotta go. I gotta leave. I gotta write this down." And then she'll be like, "Were you listening to anything that I was saying?" <laughs> no, like, no. Honestly, probably not. I don't even know what you just asked me. <laughs> Three questions in, guys. I'm just sorry we went a little bit. We got ten minutes. Oh, so somebody said somebody was asking on. about ROE. Sorry, sorry, Jake. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, somebody was just saying regarding ROE. Can you correct for debt and look at uh, some ROIC, whatever? Like when they have negative equity, how do you measure it? I I normally try like if I get into ROE stuff, I try to adjust for buybacks or I just go to return on assets. Like you have the same problem with cigarette companies. Like it, if you look at the equity, the return on equity gets crazy. So I think Greenwald would probably say, do like a theoretical replacement cost and try to uh, embed a cost of capital on that and figure out what you're, you know, I mean, figure that out that way. Most of those businesses are what he would deem franchise businesses. So you sort of just need to get yourself comfortable with the DCF and roll with it, I think. I got a good yeah, question. Yeah, I like to think about it. Sorry. Like, uh, Sorry, I go, think go, Greenblatt's go. talked about this before, but... Really, just trying to 
take a business person's approach to figuring out. Don't just look at like, well, here's a number that's in a, yeah. a spreadsheet, but like, what are the actual assets that are required? Whatever it is, I don't care how you categorize it on a balance sheet, but what are the assets required to create this flow? And then work through that and not, not be so dogmatic on, well, what's the right, you know, what's the right accounting treatment? Yeah. Roger Dodger. So uh, here's the question. Favorite Buffett deal? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. This is quality I like, programming. I like, here. This is Chris, Bro Chris Bloomstrand. Chris Bloomstrand needs the mm. credit for this one. This, this is... There are so many, but you know, this is this is just to show you what a great operator Buffett is. Um, when he buys uh, General Re, am I getting this right, JT? You probably tell yeah. this better than I do. You want you want to do it? Go ahead. You're, you're doing. You, you just 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 uh, just correct me as I go along. So he late 1990s, early 2000s. He knows that he's had this gigantic run and everything that he holds, and he's got this book that's overvalued. But he doesn't want to sell anything because that's not what he does. So he finds General Re that's basically an insurer stuffed full of bonds. That was like how how big was it relative to Berkshire? Was it like forty percent of the size of Berkshire? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what that is. It was big it was and pretty, it, was it was material. A good size acquisition, yeah. So he does a script for script acquisition of General Re, so they don't have to spend any money, and they change the 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 uh, the the asset mix inside Berkshire from being like basically 100% overvalued equities to being about two-thirds overvalued equities, about one-third kind of bonds. And then he goes into the, the big slump and he's got firepower there to do it. But he doesn't sell it that way. He doesn't tell anybody that that's what he's actually doing. And that's why I just think it's one of the all-time great like stock market operator chess moves that uh, it, I wouldn't have known about if Chris Bloomstrand and you hadn't told me about it. Yeah, that one's really good. I mean, that's like he, that. Those that's when you hear that one, you're like, oh, he's playing this game. At there's a another dimension. Than, yeah, yeah. There's a third dimension that we're all. Uh, there's at least one dimension we're all missing. I think there's another. You know, he he really is playing it like it is a kind of a. I, I hate to say dominance power game, but it is more like that than than it's just. It's not just stock picking. It's it's um getting. He, he's slinging that big industrial around. Yeah, I mean, I think um, like some of those warrant deals that he structured in 008, like those are pretty impressive. Um, I do think Press. I'm probably, yeah, like, I, well, or Bank of America. I'm probably partial to the Buffalo News just because it. when I read that story, it was the first time that I realized like what a savage killer he can be. Which one was that? Be. Just like when, when they were just like, all right, we're going to go out and we're going to win this market because it is winner take all. And then once the competition is dead, like we're going to have monopoly profits in this area. And I think, you know, like when was that? That was, was it in the 60s? Now I'm going to, people are going to be like, you don't even know the year that it was, Psst. dummy. Yeah. Whatever. Get a life. Don't come at me. I don't know. I'd guess um, 70s, early 70s, but I don't know. But like that was before. I just don't know how many people were thinking in the same way that he was thinking. And I don't know how obvious it was to everybody that newspapers were winner take all at the time. And like he went up against a pretty well capitalized competitor, as I understand it. And like they were willing to lose to invest for the future. There's just a lot in that 
whole story that I really like about him. And I, I know for a fact I would not have run the same playbook and his was right. So I respect that quite a bit. That's good. That's sort of the subject of the new book that I want to work on. It's uh, not the investment stuff so much as it is the, the other moves on the chessboard. And it's not necessarily focused on Buffett, but it's clearly, I've learned from Buffett, that all of the ideas are his, just filtered through a different filter. So uh, can we talk uh, Bitcoin? Because that's been... Yeah, all right. Let's do oh, Bitcoin. Yeah. Much, much requested. You know, it's funny. I didn't even realize when I tweeted that out that like it's at its all-time high. I was just like, all right, I, I'm having these discussions with people. I'd like to talk to somebody about Bitcoin that's sort of interested in it. And like like a true analyst like i don't have anything to share what do i know i don't know anything about this is it at its all-time high i got all-time high was like 20 something wasn't it in uh like that's how much 2017 i, I think I it's close it's back it's close it's like 18 or 19 it's almost there yeah i'm partial to gold i'm one of those guys like if you're gonna go down this route i'd probably rather have some gold and silver sil silver to buy my food and gold to cross borders i don't know that i really want to carry around bitcoin for real but you want to carry but, around gold? You're not going to get those well, Krugerrands over the border? No, I'm going to have to pay somebody. Where are you going to put them? <laughs> <laughs> they will be a darker color of gold, thank you In the much. prison ward. That's yeah. Right. So, this has been a real winter episode, guys. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I jokingly on Twitter just said, you know, what's the PE of gold at now with it running up? Just to stir the pot a little bit. And, of course, I got lambasted for it sorry but... with gold or bitcoin because you just oh, did said i say gold it. sorry yes uh, well yeah either way but uh bitcoin and so let me let me preface my what i'm about to say with that i have like anarchist capitalist libertarian leanings and so i'm actually very sympathetic towards towards bitcoin as an idea I just am not in love with it as an investment. I don't think you could call it an investment. I, maybe it's a very good speculation. Um, and, and I'll give, I, so in January of 2018, which was right after the, like, if you guys remember the Thanksgiving of 2017, everyone was talking about Bitcoin. Like, and it came, everyone came, like they went to their family gatherings. They got infected by yeah, that's right. Bitcoin <laughs> bug and then they left and everyone was buying it. Like, and, you know, I had a lot of people asking me about it. So I was like, well, I better write something in the letter about Bitcoin. And so I did. And I went back and looked at it uh, actually this morning. And so at the time, um, you know, I, I used a common Buffett ploy, which is to ask yourself, what else could you buy with that same amount of money if you were to, to, to buy it? And I looked at, so at that time, the top 10 cryptocurrencies, the market cap of them in January of 2018 was uh, about $560 billion. And I then said, okay, well, what could I buy with $560 billion that might be less sterile of an asset base, but in the same kind of world a little bit? So I looked and I could buy Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, Micron, Seagate, Duke Energy to power this, this giant computer rig, and American Express How for did a that financial turn out? layer. That would be a pretty good so, bet. There's some big, five, big winners in that. Yeah, so $552 billion is the price tag of that in January of 2018. So I'm, I came in under the top 10 cryptocurrencies. And so then I updated the numbers this morning looking at it. And I looked at the top 10 cryptocurrencies. And 
they added up and i'm not even sure if it's the same 10 that were in the 10 in 2017 i didn't really i didn't look that closely so maybe there's one that like went to zero and has been replaced but whatever Dentacoin, it's probably still going i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah so 493 billion for that top 10 market cap and so that's a minus 12 percent over that time period i added up the numbers and this is just market cap only this doesn't include the dividends that i'm sure that you got from a bunch of these companies but I added them all up, and it's 906 billion now versus Oof. my 552. So that's a 64% gain from buying kind of all the computer stuff in the world, in a way, as opposed to buying a digital currency that is in the computer world. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting update. Yeah, my good, man Bill Miller good was early on it. Shout out to Bill Miller. You know so is Kathy Wood. Thanks for listening. So is Kathy Wood. Yeah, Props to Kathy I don't Wood. Have the, same crush on Kathy. I heard Kathy had to. Kathy got the message she had to sell Not down right at the very top of the last Bitcoin run, and so cashed out some checks. Then, cash, cash that some was your takeaway from that whole thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was great. Shout out to Bill Miller. Yeah, that was okay. pretty much and by productive assets. But when he bought it, dude, it was he bought it way early, right? And he had like a, a funds flow thesis. That's why I like him, man. He's a creative dude. Funds for thesis. Letters, What's the funds for thesis? More idiots coming behind the current ones. I don't know that it's idiots, man. It was just like <laughs> I'm just, it's just I'm teasing uh, him. you know, market cap was so low when he bought in that I like this is why I think he's so creative. He bought restoration hardware when it was in the dumps. He bought airlines when they had just consolidated. He bought Bitcoin super early. He bought Farfetch before everybody was talking about it. Like this dude sees stuff early. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to study. And it's not often associated with value investors. And I think that's pretty cool. Fair enough. How'd the Kodak position go? Everybody's <laughs> got some losers. <laughs> that's time, amigos. Thanks so much. I think we're, we're going to be, I think we're here next week. Yeah, we're here, ne we're here next week. I think so. We'll see you then. Peace. Cheers. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing.